Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hash Talk, a podcast exploring the best of blockchain in Asia. I'm your host, Sankalp Shangari, and this is our open source attempt to bring you the latest news, narrative, and interviews with the best minds in blockchain and related technologies. So let's dive right in. Uh, hello, everyone. Hi. Uh, we have uh, another episode of Hash Talk today and very excited uh, to have a very special guest with us today, Kenrick uh, from Lunix Ventures. Uh, Kenrick uh, has been in the blockchain industry in Singapore for probably the longest time. Uh, Lunix, uh, part of Golden Gate Ventures, uh, an early adopter of blockchain investments into various companies. Uh, Kenrick, I would say, has seen it all and can give us a, a great perspective on the entire scene um, in, in the distributed ledger industry in Asia, including regulations, uh, what companies are doing, what investments Leonix is looking at, etc., uh, etc. Et Very excited to have Kenrick here today. Welcome, Kenrick. Thank you for having me. Great, excellent. So, Kendrick, let's uh, let's immediately jump into it and and start by knowing you. Uh, what was your previous experience? Uh, how did you land in Singapore and then in Golden Gate and now Linux? Yeah, so um, I think originally I'm I'm from the Netherlands, but I've left I left there in 2004 um, to move to Asia. So I've been in Asia for about 15 years now. Um, worked primarily um, across a number of different industries, but primarily early stage tech. So I was very early in the early 90s with building websites, building affiliate sites at the time. Uh, moved to Asia, spent four years in Thailand, spent a couple of years in Hong Kong where I did my MBA and then eventually ended up in, in Singapore where I worked for a couple of early stage uh, tech companies. So I started with Salora Lazada at the time in 2011 when they worked together. Did a gaming startup called Nonstop Games. We got acquired by King Digital. Uh, worked for Travel Mob, which turned into Home Away, which turned into Expedia, and then eventually joined Golden Gate Ventures uh, as head of growth. Basically, I was an internal consultant helping our portfolio companies grow uh, and scale. Amazing. So, what what were you doing at Zalora, Lazada, all the e-commerce stuff? Uh, what, were you programming there or consulting there? No, so when I started with internet in the early 90s, I was building websites and what I was doing basically was promoting those. So I learned my uh, SEO, SEM, basically from the early days of when that started. So I was kind of a self-taught uh, internet marketeer, if you like. So my specialty was very much SEM. Um, so I built my own business on the side, running hotel price comparison websites, which is fully automated through an SEM. Uh, strategy and basically at Dolores Lazada as well I, um, I headed up the SEM team which at the time was six people uh, managing all the SEM campaigns across uh, across Asia for, for both companies at the time we're, that were still together. Great and then how big was that marketing team for, for Lazada for example? So at the time I, I can't speak for what they have now but at the time uh, they had different uh, setups so one was the SEM team which was six people, which I was heading up. Um, they had a, a social team, which included Facebook, Twitter, uh, and the likes. Um, and then they had a broader kind of marketing team for, for offline. Um, so it, was a, it started to become a fairly sizable organization uh, at the time, but SEM was very much a specialty uh, within that. Great. So, so um, 
Today, Golden Gate, uh, a very respected name in the venture industry in, in Singapore, across Asia. In fact, I go to San Francisco and people know it, uh, not just because of the gate, but, uh, but also because of what you and Jeff and the whole team have put together. Uh, how were the early days of Golden Gate like and what was the premises to set it up and what were the themes, you know, five years uh, ago that, that you were looking at? So they started in 2011, which was uh, a good five years before I uh, I even joined. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know the backstory a little bit. So it was it was Vinny uh, Vinny Loria who was traveling uh, across Southeast Asia, and he basically realized uh, there's very little early stage venture capital available in in Singapore. So um, he met Jeff, uh, who was at the Founders Institute at the time, uh, and they basically decided to start Golden Gate Ventures. Uh, they saw the emerging internet class, basically the middle class internet coming up in, in Southeast Asia, and they really recognized that consumers here had an opportunity to, to leapfrog uh, because they were primarily mobile first. And I think that thesis played out in the early days when they invested in consumer-facing techs, uh, tech, the, the likes of Carousel, right, which was, was very much like a, an eBay to mobile uh, transition, uh, which was obviously a very successful investment as they kind of got acquired or merged with, with Telenor the other week. Um, so in the beginning, it was, it was consumer, e-commerce. Um, later on, it was a bit more, more payments. Um, and I think we're forming our thesis around uh, what's going to happen next in, in Southeast Asia. Yeah. So you joined uh, Golden Gate in 2016. Yes. And what, what was it like then? And the focus was still consumer at that time? Uh, I would say it, it was a mix at the time. Um, it was already, I think, a little bit more on uh, on the payment side, B2B side, which I think is continuing to, play, to be a team at the moment. Um, they're often a bit more uh, scalable, predictable, revenue-positive companies. So you see that, that shift happening. Yeah. Great. So how did, how did Golden Gate envisage that blockchain is coming, that, that this is... Go, going to be a, a major asset class and we need to get in now. How did that thought uh, develop? So uh, uh, Golden Gate had an investment into Omise and Omise is a Thailand-based payments uh, uh, processor, uh, primarily for traditional traditional payments. And in 2016, um, they started looking at doing uh, a token sale for a new blockchain network called the Omise Go network. Um, and so I, I had initially touched on uh, on blockchain and crypto in 2013. Uh, I looked a bit at Bitcoin. I looked a bit at Ripple. Ripple at the time was giving away their tokens for, for free, so I got some of that. But just like many people, kind of forgot about it. And I picked it up in 2016. I looked at it again, and I was like, oh, my God, right? This is the this is the next big wave of, uh, of the Internet. Um, this is going to completely change the way that finance works. Um, and basically pitched internally to, to the partners at Golden Gate, like, hey, can we set up a dedicated fund? We think this is going to be really, really important for us to have a finger on the pulse to understand how this industry works, because this will fundamentally change a lot of different things, including fund management itself and the way that funds are managed and administered. Um, so, yeah, that, um, they were very supportive. And uh, we set up this dedicated vehicle called, uh, called Lunex to invest uh, specifically and exclusively in this in this industry. Great. So, uh, so Omisego was the first investment, or was it under Golden Gate? No. So Omisego was. Uh, we participated in that kind of 
personally, but that was not a Golden Gate uh, investment. And that was one of the, the theses as well of, as to why we had to set up a dedicated fund, because uh, we, we could not participate in, uh, in any tokens uh, purely as a mandate, right? A traditional VC cannot invest in uh, other asset classes than equity. Um, so that was one of the reasons also why we wanted this, this separate vehicle. Okay, so uh, so the, the fund was formally set up in 2017 or 18? Uh, I started working on this in 2017 and we opened it up in, in 2018, yes. Great, great. There was a lot, of, um, uh, a lot of troubles involved, I would say, in terms of setting it up. It's the minute you start touching anything crypto-related, it becomes very complicated from a regulatory uh, and legal compliance point of view, right? So there's, there's a number of different things there. So one is the, the, the legal structures, um, the licensing. Um, one of the big hurdles we had to overcome was getting a bank account. Like it was very difficult at the time. Um, in Singapore, we could not get a bank account. The minute you touch anything crypto, uh, the banks will not want to bank you. So we have to find a way around this. And fortunately, there's, we have a very good partner in Silvergate, which is our U.S. Uh, bank account. Um, there's uh, questions around taxation. Uh, there's questions about custody, like how do you securely custody these assets, uh, which is all very different from traditional VC equity. Um, so for that reason, we, we spend quite a considerable amount of time, energy, and uh, and money in terms of, of setting this up and making sure that we're fully compliant uh, and as organized as, as we possibly can be. Uh, since, since you have uh, opened the Pandora's box, so I'm, I'm going to uh, take you on that. Um, regulations. Um, two years ago, three years ago, when you were setting up the fund, um, what were the we see regulations like around crypto. Uh, was there any restrictions not to set up a private equity crypto fund? And how have they developed over the last three years? And where are we today? So um, in terms of um, VC licensing, so uh, I think there's been a, been a couple of changes, but nothing has been specific to crypto as of yet. So if you have a license for a traditional VC fund manager, um, I think at the time, and probably still today, there's a requirement in that licensing that 80% of your investments need to be in private uh, equity investments. So early stage startups uh, or stuff that's not publicly, publicly traded. So that's a requirement from a licensing perspective. Um, so from that perspective, it's already quite hard to set up any fund that has a significant part in crypto assets and do it under a license, license manager. So. Um, I think MAS is, is looking at these things, but for now, that's still, that's still the case. Um, so the way that we, uh, that we thought about this is that Golden Gate, as a larger fund, uh, has all equity investments. So as Lunex, as a sub-fund, um, we can basically uh, utilize that 20% uh, other investments. Okay. Uh, so uh, does that mean uh, Lunex or other funds, for example, uh, is there a way to set up a fund, uh, be it the 20% portion of it, that can invest in ICOs or IEOs or, or the upcoming security token offerings? Because some of them are, are really outstanding. And as a VC, you do not want to miss that opportunity. So, so is it is it possible to set up those funds and invest in ICOs today? 
Um, I don't know what the latest regulation is. Like they've changed uh, or they come up with this new licensing scheme, I think, called VCFM. Um, I don't know if there's any particular provisions for uh, for these kind of things within within that licensing. There's uh, there's obviously other structures and other uh, other funds or offshore vehicles uh, to do these kind of things, but to be com- kind of fully compliant in a, in a single from a Singapore point of view, uh, I, I don't think it's it's fully possible at at the moment yet. So Lunex is a Singapore manager or is it an offshore manager? We we have a Cayman's traditional Cayman GPLP VC fund. Uh, with Golden Gates as a, as a fund manager. Yes. Amazing. Great. Um, moving on, um, uh, when, when you initially started investing uh, in, in Leonex, in the blockchain uh, crypto industry, uh, what was your thesis back then? Because it was ICO and uh, the whole crowdfunding engine was flavor of the season. And and, and uh, I remember in Singapore, everybody was running uh, and gunning to that, be the lawyers, be the advisors. Uh, but but today, obviously, the scene is uh, 360 degree different. Uh, so, so, so what was it like then in terms of your thesis of investment? And what are you investing in today? Yeah. Um, our thesis has always been that for our, L- uh, our LPs, our investors, uh, we want to offer them very uh, broad, diversified, and easy access to this ecosystem, right? So this ecosystem, I, I look at it in a, in a couple of different ways. I basically look at it as a, as a stack. So at the bottom stack, or basically the, uh, you have the protocols, and the protocols, those are currently expressed in tokens, right? So whether it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, some of the other ones, these are the protocol level uh, tokens on top of which uh, now infrastructure is being built. So um, infrastructure, uh, it's, it's, it's a broad kind of definition, but you could think of some of the investments we've done, which is custody solutions, AML, KYC, um, exchanges, wallets, uh, interoperability protocols, like different things that kind of make these protocols accessible and kind of lead to a next wave of adoption. And the next wave of adoption basically means that applications will be built on top of this infrastructure. So um, we're investing at the protocol level and at the infrastructural level, not so much at the application level just yet. Um, And I think that thesis has, has remained the same. Obviously, in 2017, there was a big ICO craze. Uh, but I think it's a good thing that most of these have, have gone away because obviously 95% of those were uh, a token was not needed for the project that was being built, right? So if you build a layer one protocol like Ethereum, uh, yes, you, you need a token, but at that time, 95% of people were just issuing tokens for fundraising purposes and basically use that as a, as a token within their business model, not as a layer one protocol. So it's a good thing that those have, have gone away. Uh, and now you see consolidation around some of these protocols. And then the, the successful infrastructure will be built on top of the successful layer one uh, protocol. So um, that's kind of the, the way we think about it. And we, we've seen really good progression. Right? And if you look at uh, adoption in terms of uh, people actually using it, number of transactions, developers working on different chains. Uh, I think it's all progressing as you would expect from any early stage technology. It's it's not it's not going to happen overnight, right? Uh, the internet was also not built uh, from one year to the next. Um, but I think just looking at um, at the developers coming into the ecosystem, looking at the talents coming into the industry, the entrepreneurs entering, 
Um, I think it's super exciting. I think we're really on course to build something really, really special uh, over the next, let's say, five, five to ten years. Absolutely. Uh, there was a there was a newsletter from Fred Wilson a couple of days ago uh, from US V Ventures, uh, actually uh, talking about. Uh, how it took about 15 years for the internet to really come alive, uh, how, how Facebook was not born overnight and, and really came into being around 2004, 5, uh, and, and not uh, 1995. Um, and and he was, he's obviously a big proponent of crypto and he was comparing it to the entire uh, crypto industry and very bullish going forward uh, 2021. But 2020, he was still not very... Uh, bullish on the entire um, adoption thing. So so definitely I, I, I'm also of the same opinion because I have wrongly uh, uh, misanticipated the mass adoption, especially the B2C, without even thinking that there is a huge B2B requirement, uh, the infrastructure requirement uh, yet to be matured. Uh, even the side chains or the interoperability layers are are just being formed. You know, talk of Matic or talk of Cosmos or talk of so many of uh, these new players, they're, they're not mature yet. You know, Bitcoin is still Bitcoin. There is no uh, lightning. Uh, it's, it's still still uh, very uh, nascent. So so I'm I'm with you with you on that. But but on the on the VC side on the on the venture. Uh, investment side today, uh, would you say that these uh, uh, protocols, uh, when you say protocols, are we talking about Matic and Cosmos also as protocols or are these infrastructure layers on top of protocols? Because there's always a confusion between the two. Yeah, I, I would I would refer to those as, as protocols, right? Those are even earlier stage protocols. Uh, so if you if you talk about mature protocols, it's, yeah. it's Bitcoin, of course, and, and Ethereum as the most mature. Um, stuff that have a token that require a token, those and are actually decentralized, um, those would be your, your level one protocols. The infrastructure is more the companies that are building on top of this, as you said. Um, and a, long, a lot of this is so necessary before you can do anything else. So we've seen that in terms of setting up our fund, right? Um, all these different hurdles that you have before you can even reach uh, mainstream adoption or mainstream, mainstream usage. Um, to give you an example, um, if we as an asset manager, asset manager um, want to receive, for example, uh, Bitcoin as a subscription into our fund, it's, it's very complicated for us to do that from a legal point of view, uh, from an AML point of view. Right? How do we check that um, that is this money is properly KYC'd and, and AML. Um, our lawyers don't understand that. Our fund administrator doesn't understand that. So there's a lot of education going from us to our service providers as well in terms of how they have to deal with these tokens and what it represents and what it means. Um, and they are often not comfortable handling these, uh, these kind of things. So that's why you need all these third-party uh, solutions and providers to make this palatable for larger institutions. Right? So custody is a very good one of them. Like you want a licensed custodian uh, if you're a larger investor. You want proper AML checks if you're a larger investor. And those services, those are just being built out now. Um, and you're starting to see them uh, coming online. So uh, two years ago, it would have been impossible for me to accept uh, Bitcoin as a subscription, for example, into the fund. 
as of today, it would still be a little bit cumbersome, but we could probably get the lawyers comfortable with a third-party solution like Merkle Science, which is one of our uh, portfolio companies, if they provide the proper AML checks to do so. Yeah. Mm, great. So, so infrastructure is getting better by the day. Uh, number one, number two, definitely this is a mainstream asset class, and funds like yourself or companies um, who are who are getting regulated are are here to stay. Uh, and 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 thirdly, uh, we 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 are we are we are at the cusp of a mass adoption of uh, call it B two B enterprise scale. Uh, blockchains or B2C application layer uh, blockchains. Where is Lunex investing today? Are you more um, inclined on the infrastructure side of things or are you also looking at B2C applications? So that comes down to to kind of, uh, I guess, my, my personal belief and, and kind of our, our thesis is very much around the open, permissionless, um, uh, fully decentralized blockchains, right? So we, we are... Uh, primarily focus on open protocols, on uh, things that are accessible. So the, the the analogy that I often draw is like in the 90s, um, when the internet came about, for the, for the first couple of years of the internet, there was this um, very big movement. I remember very distinctly, like when I was living in the Netherlands, uh, there was this closed version of the internet there called iMode. It was one of the largest kind of telco companies there called KPN that launched iMode, which was a product out of Japan. Um, which was basically a permissioned version of the internet. In the US, you had the same, I think it was called CompuServe um, there, where uh, you had this permissioned version of the internet, where you certain companies were allowed to build applications there or, or launch websites on it. Uh, and then there was a central organization controlling who those companies would be. Um, but at the same time, you had the open permissionless internet, right? TCP, IP, um, basically websites as we as we know them today. And in the end, those solutions won because that's where the developers will flock. That's where the actual innovation happens. The innovation happens at the fringes. The, in, the innovation doesn't happen, you know, by a central authority uh, mandating it. Like, we, we don't even know what this technology is capable of as of today. It's going to be ground up, uh, really, really smart young developers who come up with these new applications and they will build on top of the open decentralized protocols. Um, another good example is I think a lot of companies have learned their lesson as well. Like if you speak to Zynga, for example, uh, Mark Pincus there, he would probably tell you that uh, he's not a big fan of Facebook because at the time when they had Farmville, their, um, their game, they got a lot of traction because of Facebook, but then they were platform dependent. Um, Facebook decided to show less of uh, of those uh, kind of what you did to your cows in the Facebook newsfeed, and all of a sudden their user numbers dropped basically overnight. So developers want to build on things that are open that uh, that cannot be taken down by the whim of some central authority. And I think that's the exciting stuff. That's where the exciting innovation will happen. And for that reason, we're focused on those protocols and the infrastructure being built on top of those protocols. 
I, I, I have a question for you on that. Uh, uh, I, we, we, we tend to see in the blockchain industry companies like, or, or I should say games like uh, CryptoKitties or uh, Gods Unchained uh, getting a lot of traction um, from the crypto community and a and lot of users as well and a lot of gains in their tokens or NFTs that they have. But at the same time, you also have an entire dApp industry in DeFi uh, uh, call it uh, Insta app or, or Nuo or Compound Dharma, etc., etc. But if you see at the number of users or the protocol they are using, it's only Ethereum-based. It's only Ethereum developers, uh, which is not bad per se, but then uh, the, the, the number of users is kind of stagnated. Uh, it's not increasing. So as a VC, you know, if you are investing in these DApp players, uh, or, DApp or, or decentralized applications. What is your criteria for investing in them? Are you looking at a slow growth over the years in a good team and a good product? Or are you looking at uh, innovative product that could change, be very revolutionary? Or are you looking at a games kind of gods unchanged, which will have a lot of users? H- how do you make your decisions? Um, I think it's a, it's always a combination of, of many different factors. It's never one factor that kind of determines whether we whether we invest or not. Um, first of all, it, it needs to fit. Yes, it needs to fit our thesis, right? So it, it needs to fit our thesis of like, is this being built uh, on top of open permissionless chains? Like, is this uh, potentially like a ten to hundred x kind of kind of company, right? Like, so is 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 that the potential? That's one. Um, but then obviously there's many other factors um, then there's a factor probably the most important because we invest mostly at the seed level is simply the team right like yeah. what have, what have these guys done like how good are they what's their vision what's their enthusiasm for this space like what do they want to build like do they have that mindset of like we want to build a 100x kind of company so I would say that's probably the most important factor um, and then there's other things, right? Like, do we think this can actually work? Um, do we think the valuation is uh, is good or, or reasonable so that we can actually make that return? So there's, there's a number of different factors filtering in there. I, I wouldn't say there's one or the other. It's mostly like the team and does it fit our uh, our thesis of what we think this world could, could look like. Great. Right. So uh, besides the team, uh, what is the most impact important factor while investing, in your opinion? What is that? Do you look at market size? Do you look at uh, uh, the potential returns? Uh, is it more important to you? Is it uh, what? What is that one factor that, that you're always searching for? Yeah, but potential market size, I would say, is is probably the most important there, right? So if you look across our investments um, you can probably see some of see some of that so uh, a custody solution that we invested in custody has a potentially very large market um, the AML solution uh, everybody needs something a service provider like this if you operate in this in this space uh, we invested in DEXDF which is a decentralized asset management protocol based in, in Singapore here the team as very deep expertise in traditional asset management and they're now entering this space so it's a bit of a combination of traditional asset management is a very large space uh, and significant even if just a few percent of that space moves over into this world you have a very large kind of market um, on your hands 
Um, same for Keyless, which is a authentication management tool. Like authentication at the moment is kind of fundamentally broken, right? With a username and password, um, uh, and these all these two FA kind of login methods. Like there's a there's a there's a ten x to hundred x improvement possible there. So that's definitely something that's uh, that's important to us. Yeah. yeah. Great. Um, um, moving on, uh, uh, Kenrick. Uh, what what do you think of the regulatory scenario, not only in the venture industry, but but with this new Payment Services Act coming up, the sandbox that that the MAS has provided, and I know few of your companies uh, are there or going to get there. What is your entire take on uh, how Singapore is opening up gradually to the to the blockchain regulations? Um, I think we're actually very fortunate to be to be in Singapore. So, um, MES has been very kind of forward thinking, I think, but uh, not kind of jumping in head first. Um, they take a cautionary approach and they look at the the areas that are actually important, right? In terms of in terms of regulation. Um, so, what they are most concerned about is the AML KYC portion uh, of the whole the whole equation and. Uh, so that's where they'll be looking at first. So they, they don't go in and start prohibiting or regulating things when the market is still very nascent. So for the moment, for example, they will be regulating security tokens custody, but they won't be regulating utility tokens custody yet. Um, and for the reasons of that, you, you'd have to ask MAS. But um, I, I would think that the market is still relatively small. It, it doesn't form any dangers for kind of financial stability. Uh, so they take it one step at a time and then apply the learnings that they get from the already regulated space, right? So securities are regulated, so you can port that towards security tokens. Uh, you got to learn a lot of learnings out of that, and then you take it in that, the next step to, to utility tokens. So, yeah, uh, I mean, so far Singapore has been, been very uh, forward-thinking, uh, slowly implementing new uh, regulations without hindering... Uh, kind of innovation so um, so far so good but you never know right yeah yeah no but but uh, I I tend to agree with you we're very fortunate because the regulator here is very uh, forward-looking and they are they're gradually opening up which is the right approach at the end of the day they have to run a country yeah it's not uh, running few people or or or, or you know even 100 people it's, it's the whole and there's a traditional a large traditional industry that needs to be taken care of at the same time, and regulations uh, more more so are are good uh, for for the benefit of the citizens, unless it, they're exploited by some large corporates, etc. Um, uh, on the on the on the VC industry side, and there's so many uh, uh, crypto venture capitalists now, and so many blockchain companies that are investing uh, across the region, uh, uh, and and you you meet most of them all the time. Uh, uh, what 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 is what is the one investment criteria, or what is what is the flavor of the season today that everybody wants to invest in? What kind of companies are people looking forward to? I think, as you mentioned, uh, DeFi is is really really hot and uh, kind of exciting right now. Um, we're taking a little bit of a cautionary approach there um, because. I feel it's that is really really experimental still. I mean, it's super exciting. It's amazing if you look at protocols like MakerDAO, uh, how you can have a completely permissionless 
stablecoin like DAI uh, and all the other products that come out of that. But you have to remember that DAI uh, and MakerDAO, they're all derivatives basically of the underlying, which is Ether. Um, if something were to happen to Ether, um, that basically, uh, that whole ecosystem would, would suffer, right? So um, not saying that it would, but it, those bets are uh, a bit further up the risk scale, I would say. Um, so we're looking at that space, um, but haven't made any kind of active investments uh, there. But that's definitely something that people are very excited about uh, today. Okay. I, I also want to ask you a generic uh, early stage uh, investor uh, thesis. Um, you know, whenever I go to US, I see a lot of uh, seed venture uh, capital companies, uh, uh, individual VCs, uh, large VCs, smaller spin-off VCs, uh, corporate VCs, etc., and and a lot of liquidity, uh, and and obviously a lot more money than than Asia. Uh, earlier, you said that there is a, a very little early stage ventures in Asia, or used to be. Uh, there are a bit more. Why? Why is that? Uh, in spite of uh, such a huge uh, influx of companies around the, the the region, we still do not have that many or that advanced or that uh, liquid uh, venture capitalists like Silicon Valley. Uh, I think it's a natural result of like how so the the whole kind of startup ecosystem in Singapore is is barely kind of ten years old or so right like ten years ago there was very little in terms of in terms of startup and it just takes time to build such a such an ecosystem I mean Silicon Valley has been going on for for decades and you have second time third time fourth time entrepreneurs building companies giving back uh, to earlier uh, to new founders in terms of mentorship in terms of capital. Uh, that ecosystem is still very nascent in Singapore. Only now you're starting to see some exits, some kind of second-time entrepreneurs building companies again. That will just take time. And with it, uh, you get new venture funds coming. You get new innovation coming in. Um, it's just that it hasn't traditionally been a thing, entrepreneurship here. But that's rapidly changing ever since uh, the government made a very big push for that 10 years ago, right, with different incentives and startup startup schemes um, that is just more like a 30 40 50 year kind of cycle I think um, so that will take maybe even longer to develop than, than the crypto industry mm -hmm. oh uh, uh, so for a, for an early stage uh, uh, venture capitalist or a new newbie in this field um, would you recommend to set it up in Singapore given that we are seeing more companies here? Or would you recommend to set it up in Silicon Valley, given that there is a bigger, better network? I guess it depends on, on your focus, on where, uh, where you want the, kind of the, the gravity of your, uh, your investments to, to be. And I think there's probably more opportunity in, in Asia in terms of early stage venture investing because there's less players um, to, do it, to do it over here. Um, yeah, uh, it depends on your thesis, it depends on your focus, it depends on your, your investors. Um, I think the market here, if you, if you take Southeast Asia as a market, it, uh, it's a huge market and there's still many, many different opportunities. Um, 
yeah, if you, if you like early stage, then this is probably a better, uh, better place to be in. Okay, okay. Excellent, excellent, Kenrick. Uh, let's, let's move on to my uh, favorite round, which is a rapid fire. Oh I'm going to ask you about 10 questions and, and whatever comes to mind. Uh, uh, very free, very easy questions. It says, uh, uh, there's nothing to be scared about uh, with the look on your face. Uh, uh, so so let's dive right in. Yeah. Uh, first, uh, what's your favorite book and why? Um, I'm, I'm going to skip that question. My, my favorite book is basically uh, news. Like, I love The Economist. I love stuff that's new. Um, I have nothing against books. I, I read a book once once in a while, but I prefer stuff that's kind of new, that's like on the edge, and on the edge stuff usually doesn't show up in, in, in books. Um, so I'm more of an article, podcast, economist type of uh, person. Great. And so what what's that your one go-to source uh, for your industry that every day you have to listen to or read to? Uh, be it an article, publishing website, or is it a podcast? What is that one source? Yeah, I, I think I'm subscribed to like 10 or so, 15 different crypto podcasts. So yeah, I spent, I think, a few hours a day just listening to those from the morning when I commute to work or when I'm in the shower or uh, before I go to bed. Crypto podcasts, like, I think there's a ton of information you can get out of out of those, and including yours, of course. You're, Thank you're, you. You're on the list. Thank you. Uh, that's definitely my, my go-to source and um, yeah, so as many people in this industry probably know, uh, whether it's a good source of information or not, that's debatable, but there's a lot of stuff happening on Twitter, so yeah. <laughs> you can always uh, get into an argument over there. The crypto Twitter. The crypto Twitter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you could have uh, dinner or lunch or spend time with three personalities, dead or alive, uh, who would that be and why? Oh, geez, your questions are, they are uh, alive. What comes to mind in our industry, uh, Andreas Antonopoulos, big, big fan of him. Nice. Uh, I think he's, he's amazing. He's genuine, uh, unbiased, uh, extremely knowledgeable in his field. Um, I think he's a great spokesperson for, for this industry. Um, think of some, uh, some dead persons. Hmm. Who would that be? I'm, I'm drawing a blank. It's, it, it could be anyone. It could be a prime minister or a freedom fighter or or even a, a obscure personality that nobody knows. Some some someone who's who's always you've always been fascinated with. Mm. Could be a movie star. Jeez. No, drawing can, a, all right. Drawing that, a complete is, blank here. I think Andres is good enough. He's a he's a great choice, and yeah. and uh, we all respect him in the crypto world. Um, what's that? Uh, uh, give me one uh, another venture capital firm besides yours, which is your favorite. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's the the usual suspects, all right? So uh, Andreessen is is an amazing firm. Sequoia is an amazing firm. Um, they've built their reputations over many, many years, and um, yeah, um, I, I think uh, and, and recent particularly uh, because they they had the balls, if you like, to set up a, a dedicated, you know, the uh, crypto fund, 
yeah. uh, very early on. So I think they recognize the um, the potential of this of this industry. So yeah, that's uh, yeah. Christensen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I love Andreessen, and I recently uh, completed Ben's uh, book, Hard Things About Hard Things. Uh, nice, yeah. It teaches you so much about how startups uh, work, and you realize that every startup is going through the same struggle. Yeah, it's it's uh, just a, a bit more for someone, and more complex for others, and less uh, strenuous for others, but. But you feel you are sitting in that position when you are reading that book, yeah. and and eventually you always come out alive. So so you know the darkest hour is is before just before the dawn. So so don't absolutely. just quit, never quit. Yeah, great, um, right? Yeah, great. Makes it absolutely. So so great, great, uh, and 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 how both of them struggled and how it was, it's great, great read. Um, uh, we cannot let you go without one price prediction about Bitcoin in June 2020. Oh, no. You're this this is not an investment advice. <laughs> uh, June 2020. Um, June 2020. That's supposed to have a uh, June 2020. Uh, we're going to be at 12K. Okay. Okay. Great. Great. So far, just to let you know, and for the audience as well, uh, uh, the average is hovering around 15. Okay. okay. Right? So, uh, so you're I not far. Yeah, no. Yeah. Let, yeah. let's, let's not comment further on the price. Yeah. It's, a, it's a fool's game. Yeah. Uh, Long term, very bullish. Okay. Uh, I'm a uh, I'm a slight slight believer in the in the stock to flow model by uh, by by Plan B. I think it makes it makes conceptually it makes sense and statistically apparently it also makes sense. So uh, over the long term, um, we we all hope that this holds true. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think I think. Uh, again, uh, if you if you read the Alchemist, it says uh, uh, something you re- really uh, pursue, something you really desire uh, from your within your hearts of hearts, and and the whole world starts to uh, work towards to making it true. And here we have one percent of the world's population looking to a fifty thousand Bitcoin price, yeah. <laughs> you know, right. daily checking right. their prices and really uh, looking for the FOMO of that perception itself. I think could could uh, be long term positive. What is the most important thing you have learned in your life, and what was your life before learning it, and what is your life after learning that? Um, I think it's. Um, I'd say like it, it started quite. I don't know if this was something in, inherent, but I think my uh, my dad always encouraged me to kind of take take chances when they present them and take opportunity when they present themselves and uh, even if they're uncertain because that's often where the biggest opportunities are. So uh, I think he inspired that in me quite quite early on uh, by always choosing, you know, slight, something slightly different from what my peers would, would choose. I'm a firm believer in that the biggest opportunity is where the least amount of people are looking. Um, and I think that represents our space space pretty well. Um, yeah, don't be afraid to uh, to change. Don't be afraid to upend your uh, your career. Change where you, you have like adaptability. I would say, right? So I changed industries a, a number of times um, uh, in terms of where where I was working, and it's always turned out for for the better. Um, you have to go where where the puck is going, and not where everybody's looking at the moment. I think yep. that's my yep. my biggest. Uh, great, great. Uh, one thing you could do more of. 
I could do more of. Um, one thing I could do more of, uh, probably reading, uh, as you as you mentioned, I, yeah. I need to read read more books. Uh-huh. Um, uh, to just meeting meeting more people, right? Meeting meeting more companies in this in this space. So as as this as this industry grows, it becomes harder and harder to meet everybody. Um, so I think the coming year or two is still you still have an opportunity to meet the most important players in this ecosystem and build those relationships for kind of the next 10 years yeah um, so uh, yeah meeting people building relationships that's definitely something everybody uh, myself included needs to need to do more of great if, if to two years ago or three years ago when, when you set up the fund or you made your first investment um, if you could go back and change one thing uh, what would that be? Uh, obviously, not the price, but uh, <laughs> but but uh, one one thing that that you wish you had known back then. Um, um, what would I have wished to known back then? Um, Yeah, also probably, I, I, I'm with you there that I probably in the beginning also overestimated kind of the, uh, the, speed, the speed of adoption. Um, I, I would have thought that things would go faster, but kind of in hindsight, the, the, the more you start to understand the technology and the more that you see things being built out on the ground, I think it's very natural, the progression that's currently happening. But when you first start looking at things, you think, oh, this makes so much sense. Why is it not happening already? Um, so I think that, that would have been helpful to realize from the start. But I think we, yeah, we, we kind of understand that now that this is going to be like a longer term uh, progression, basically. Mm, great. Uh, thank you, Kendrick. Uh, uh, you did very well in the rapid fire, but I let the audience decide and rate you. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, be the, the purely decentralized way, the way you love it. Oh no! Uh, so, but it went uh, very rapid, right? Like yeah. I think I, uh, I maybe have expanded too much on the rapid questions. That, that's all right. That's <laughs> all right. Uh, everyone is like that. It's, oh, okay. it's, uh, yeah, but but. Uh, uh, you know, I am no one to say anything. I'll have my rating and let the decentralized world rate. You, you don't do the alien question like pump? No, no, I'm not going to copy that. <laughs> uh, for me, it's the more standard rapid oh, yeah, fires. Yeah. Uh, but but thank you so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed. We learned a lot. And, and I think everybody, uh, there have been few requests to get you on board. Uh, so here we are. And, uh, and thank you once again. Thank you for having me. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Hold up.